If you're innovating, creating, or making a difference, this show is for you. Welcome to Over Coffee. I'm Dot Cannon. Here on Over Coffee, we talk with artists and innovators about the process of changing the world in terms of what they do. What does it take to be an alchemist? That was the first phase, and we thought, okay, we'll let people step into the paintings. And then we thought, why don't we give them a story so that they can understand that alchemy is a problem-solving tool? And science could easily be considered an artist's tool. That is according to Dr. Elizabeth Barry Draco, who's a public history fellow at the Science History Institute in Philadelphia. Lisa, as she prefers to be called, is an artist, art historian, and educator who specializes in creating content that illustrates the ways art intersects with early modern science. One of her recent projects has been the curation of an exhibit entitled Age of Alchemy. And the Age of Alchemy exhibit is just one of a series of alchemy-inspired projects which will ultimately include a digital game that's going to immerse players in a 17th century alchemy lab. Lisa, which first sparked your imagination, art or science? Oh, I'm going to have to say art because my father actually, though he was not an art educator, went to school for art education. So I have great memories of sitting around and drawing with him. And in fact, I have this wonderful drawing of He drew a beautiful picture of our dog, a very simple picture because he was trying to teach me how to translate sort of, you know, real-world, three-dimensional objects into two-dimensional drawn objects. So it's a very beautiful but very simple drawing, and underneath it is fine, and it's just atrocious. (laughs) So I really really treasure that picture. (laughs) What a wonderful memory to have. Yeah, he was was a great inspiration, and my grandmother was also, uh, my mother's side was also a painter, became a painter later in life and so I was I have a lot of sense memories of being in her studio and smelling turpentine and oil paint and you know sort of bouncing my finger on a stretched canvas and all that stuff and she let me she let me do whatever I wanted in her studio which is incredibly generous <laughs> I did not realize how generous at the time I think at the time it's just oh this is my world I would bet yeah with all the cool fun stuff you were getting to do How did you come to realize that art and science are intertwined? Well, I I think it took me, I think there's, at least for somebody growing up when I was, you know, in the 80s and then in the 90s, I think there was a sort of growing interest, especially in digital art. And, you know, could could we look at art online? Could we do something interesting with art online for the first time? So I think I was always a little bit cognizant of the sort of connections between, you know, art and science especially in the kind of digital realm of things. I worked also at a wonderful community art center called Fleischer Art Memorial here in Philadelphia. It was one of my first jobs out of undergraduate. And we, you know, it's a free and low tuition art school. And it teaches everything from, you know, silkscreen to painting and drawing and all this kind of stuff. And I was there actually when we started our digital photography program for the very first time. And so we had a digital we had a digital art studio that we opened and it was all brand new and very exciting. And so I was I was a little bit part of that thinking about that art and science, you know, and technology kind of intersection. But then I when I left Fleischer and went into my graduate research, I started working on images of scientists, physicians, people who are investigating nature in a lot of different ways. So I looked at anatomy, I looked at a 
thankfully now discredited, you know, sort of pseudoscience called physiognomy, which looks at kind of facial features to read the soul and all the problematic implications of that that you can possibly imagine, of course, you know, but we're talking about the 14th, 15th, 16th century. So I started working on that because I, you know, I was very interested in artists who are capturing these incredible levels of detail. I mean, the draftsmanship and especially some of these works from the 15th and 16th century and then print culture. I got interested in the history of the print because the print as this sort of reproducible medium becomes, you know, we think about things that are mass printed. Of course, we have a lot of skepticism about (laughs) printed information these days, but the print really makes it possible to share new scientific information or, you know, new information about the natural world really widely and for a whole new audience. So if there's a comet sighting, if there's, you know, some kind of astronomical phenomenon, if there's, you know, an unusual, there's something that's printed quite a lot as these monstrous birth things where it's, you know, oh, a calf, a three-headed calf was born, and what does that mean? But Often they would send an artist out to document these things. They would send someone to do a drawing, and then they would create a print after it, then they would share the print widely. So I became really interested in how a medium can affect, you know, the transmission of information. And from there I went into, you know, medicine and all these other things, and I ended up in alchemy, which is really just the precursor to chemistry in a lot of ways. It's how people are figuring out sort of properties of matter. What does, you know, what does one metal do when it's heated versus another metal versus a mineral versus a vegetable substance versus et cetera, et cetera. And so early modern people are creating all these wonderful images of laboratories and other kinds of, you know, investigative workspaces. So I, I really became interested in that, and I started to see quite a strong similarity between images of laboratories and kind of, you know, empirical workspaces and artist studios. I was looking between the two of them and I was thinking, God, they paint these spaces with the same, a lot of the same objects and a lot of the same tools and things like that. So what does that, what does that mean? That they're representing, you know, they as representers of science and representers of their own art are creating those, they're creating those similarities themselves. So what does that say about their knowledge of science and their interest in science and the role that they play in actually creating knowledge also? I'm thinking of some of the tools that artists use. I'm thinking, yeah, the palette knife and the way that you heat some different compounds. Well, yeah, I mean, glassware, turpentine, you know, acids, etchers, people who are etching, you know, copper plates and things like that have to be very sophisticated in their knowledge of you know, etching chemicals and acids and that sort of thing. Same things that are being used by alchemists to dissolve metals and recombine them and perform experiments and that, you know, so a lot of a lot of similarities, you know, in the stuff and also in the knowledge. Lisa says that knowledge goes far beyond what most people associate with alchemy and that quite a few artists were involved. There's a very famous engraver called Henrik Goltius who ends up giving up engraving and moving into painting around 1600. And that's his career journey is pretty interesting, but it's also interesting that he is very interested in transforming materials. He creates these paintings that are, frankly, they're just confusing. They're these, they're called pen works. So he is painting on a canvas, but also drawing on a canvas, but also in a way engraving or carving into the canvas. And they really, you know, today we'd call them mixed media, but that's not so much of a category (laughs) around 1600. And actually, 
some of these works end up in the collection of Rudolf II, who is, he's the Holy Roman Emperor, and he is a famous patron of alchemy. He patronizes alchemists, astrologists, astronomers, anybody engaged in the sciences. He wants them in his court. He wants them working on cool stuff. So he is fascinated by Holtius and, you know, collects his works and has people stand around in his galleries and go, what is this made out of? What's it made out of? It's so, it's so confusing. It's so transformed, you know, taking raw matter and transforming it. And it's not incidental that Holtius is also interested in alchemy. He hires an alchemist to actually live in his house and to teach him gold making. And he gets into a, of course, this guy goes and boasts around town that he's taught the secret of gold making to Holtius. And they get in this fight and this legal battle and it's, it's all a mess. But one of Holtius's pupils is Cornelius Strebel, who trains with him as a printmaker and an artist. And Cornelius Strebel ends up moving to London and becoming an inventor. He is so interested in how things work. He's an engineer, a mechanical genius, and he ends up becoming the inventor of the submarine. So there's really a direct line between alchemy and the submarine, <laughs> which you would never, never expect. Wow. You also blew me away in one of your articles because you said even though Leonardo da Vinci scorned alchemy, he did some alchemical experiments. I didn't know that. Yeah, he was, he was interested. He's, of course, what they call a polymath. He's interested in everything. He's pretty much what they named this Renaissance man idea after, you know, he's interested in engineering, he's interested in chemistry, he's interested, he works often as a, in a sense, a kind of defense contractor, and that's a weird loaded term for now, I guess, but he consults with, you know, princes and dukes on how to build their defenses. So he invents these shapes for fortresses, you know, using geometry and physics and all these things. He invents these shapes for fortresses, which are more defensible, he works on, you know, instruments, implements of war and siege towers and all these kinds of things. But he also, of course, works on aviation and, you know, different kinds of, you know, uh, transportation devices. And he's also interested in chemistry and anatomy, of course, his beautiful anatomical studies. So he's interested in how everything works, including matter and chemistry, even though he really is in a rivalry with alchemists because, you know, who's the better imitator of nature? Who knows nature best? Who has mastered nature and, and transformation of nature, really? Who's in the number one slot? And Leonardo really wants it to be artists. He wants artists to be in that number one slot, and he wants alchemists to be much lower <laughs> because they're, they're really rivals. They are rivals in a way because their knowledge sets overlap you know, so much. So it, it's no surprise to me that, you know, he'd be interested in it, but he'd want to become the master of it, and he'd want to be in that top slot. It's interesting to see how art and science today are not so much rivals anymore. It used to be never the twain did meet. That's not true any longer. Yeah, no. I think it's shifting after a long, long time. I think we saw them as, you know, science is, science is rational, and it's objective, and art is passionate and emotional and completely subjective. And I think we're realizing that there's both of, you know, art can be very rational, and science can be very subjective. So, you know, certainly the interpretation of science can be very subjective. And so I think, I think people are realizing that they're way more tied together than we have pretended that they were not for the last couple of centuries. <laughs> what are some of the STEAM initiatives that you see happening right now that you think are going to make a difference in the future that might be a parallel to some of the stuff that was going on back in the age of alchemy? I'm really interested in the conservation world. Frankly, I think that art conservation is one of those great places where you have artists and curators and art historians talking to scientists and analysts and, you know, conservators who sit and sort of straddle between worlds. 
So I've been able to do some surface analysis <laughs> projects of paintings in our collection with the help of folks from Winterthur. The Winterthur Museum and Gardens has a great technical analysis lab there. They were kind enough to loan us some equipment to look at some paintings. And I think, I think looking to the conservation world, looking to places like the ICA in New York and other folks, where you see those partnerships between the art world and the science world, that's often in conservation. Like the, the Getty has this great pop art conservation project going on because a lot of 20th century artworks, like the works of the abstract, abstract expressionists and Jackson Pollock and Rauschenberg and all this, they were often using house paints or like the new latex paints and, and sort of, sort of I won't say indiscriminately, but, you know, really diversely. <laughs> they were using all of these different kinds of new materials, a lot of them plastic-based or petroleum-based paints. And those creations are having a lot of difficulty. We're having a lot of difficulty preserving them because, you know, we don't have, it's not oil paint. We don't have like, you know, 600 years of understanding how it, how it changes and how to conserve it over time. You know, it's a relatively new material. There's also things like 3D printing. 3D printed art has entered, you know, art museums and art galleries now, but 3D printed plastics don't have a great survival rate. So how do you preserve them? Or how do you replace them? So, you know, and what is, it's making the art world sort of figure out what is the concept of, you know, we're going back to that idea, like, well, what is an original work of art? Is it the original 3D printed piece? Is it the replacement of the 3D printed piece? You know, like, is it, is it documentation of the piece after it's degraded? Like, what is, so I think it's really, the challenges are, I totally understand for curators, it's very, it's very, like, tensely challenging, but it is fascinating to see how, you know, we're going to adapt to that. So I really, when I want to think about that sort of art and science connection, I love to look at the conservation world because they're often, they're often leading the way out of necessity, but also, you know, out of experience in blending that art and science together and in seeing it really holistically. That art-science connection continues with the Science Institute's current exhibit, Age of Alchemy which is just one of a series of alchemy-inspired projects. What were some of the most fun myths that you debunked for Age of Alchemy this past summer? Oh, yeah. So, oh, my God, there's so many, there's so many myths about alchemy, and a lot of it is it's the, you know, it's the 19th century, the 1800s, kind of looking back at the past and going, oh, my God, we didn't know what elements were. You know, we didn't, we didn't have atomic theory. We had precursors to atomic theory, but we hadn't worked out atomic theory yet. We hadn't figured out, you know, what is the definition of an element? Well, you know, lead can never change into gold. And they were really embarrassed. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a bit of embarrassment, you know, looking backwards. And so a lot of myths grow up that it's like, you know, well, alchemy was fake. It was fake. It was false. We were wrong. That was a time of superstition, and it was basically witchcraft, and we were trying to, like, summon the spirits of metals. And, oh, give me a break. No, 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 that was nonsense. But in reality, you know, it is the precursor to chemistry, and they are making things that are quite useful. For example, what example I always turn to, which is pigments and dyes. So they know that alchemists are the ones creating pigments and dyes, you know, sort of synthetic pigments and dyes from a very early period. Things like, you know, vermilion, which is a sulfur-mercury combination that makes a really beautiful red that you will see in any, you know, any Caravaggio or Vermeer, you know, and you see that brilliant red, and it's very typically vermilion, which is made by alchemists and would have been sold, you know, alongside other kinds of chemicals, even sold in London until, I think, the early 16th century. 
they're actually pigments are often classified and taxed the same way that drugs are, um, you know, uh, medical compounds and that sort of thing. So there's a real there's a real connection between these things. And so dispelling just dispelling the myth that alchemists never made anything useful, didn't do anything productive with their time. You know, they just investigated this. They looked for the philosopher's stone. They wanted to become immortal. They wanted to turn lead into gold. Like. Of course they wanted to do that. Who doesn't? <laughs> like, who doesn't want to, you know, live forever in a house made of solid gold or whatever? But, you know, but they they really were useful members of society, and they were, you know, they were integrated into society. They were not just hermits living in the middle of nowhere. And it also dispels one of the myths that they, they worked alone. Alchemists, you know, certain alchemists, of course, worked alone, but most were integrated into, you know, they had families. They ran big workshops where they did lots of different things. You know, they ran, so if someone owned a sort of metallurgical workshop, you know, alchemy might be one of the things, transforming metals might be one of the things that they did, but they would also, you know, they would work for a mining company and they would refine the ores that are being dug up. They might work for a pigment maker or a dyer. They might work for a physician creating, you know, chemical medicines. Like they were, they were a part and parcel of that world. And they also were not just men. <laughs> so in the images of alchemy that you see in the show like ours, Age of Alchemy, you will really only see alchemists represented as, you know, mature, adult, white European men, often bearded, nicely dressed. But that is not the whole picture of alchemy. Of course, these images are very constructive. They're very selective. So you don't see that women are engaged in alchemy. Jewish men are engaged in alchemy, you know, quote-unquote foreigners or migrants and Muslim alchemists, you know. So there's, alchemy is really a quite diverse community with a quite diverse history. Some of the founding figures are, in fact, alchemists of the Islamic world, and their works get translated and retranslated and brought into a Western context. And, of course, women are contributing, you know, not only are they doing experiments and writing theory, they're the people who make the alchemical household run. <laughs> you know, it's indispensable to keep the fire stoked and keep the supplies coming in and manage the people and, you know, keep an eye on the experiments and do all that stuff. So you can't, it's much like today, my colleague Amanda Mahoney works on history of nursing and clinical practice. And, you know, nurses are often that invisible part of the apparatus that keeps everything running, <laughs> you know, or or the machinists in a factory where, you know, Nobel Prize winning research has been done in this laboratory, but, you know, really there's also technicians and machinists and people who maintain everything. You know, it's part of this whole system of creating that knowledge. And alchemists, you know, every type of alchemist is really embedded in making that all work and making that all run and getting us to the point where we can have chemistry departments and we can have atomic theory and we can have elements and all that sort of thing. Would you share the story of one of the women alchemists you uncovered in your research? Margaret Cavendish is a really fascinating person that we looked to quite a few times. She is, in the 1600s, a very wealthy, prominent woman. So, of course, she's allowed a bit more freedom to engage in her interests. And she is very interested. She's alive at the time when they're forming the Royal Society of London. So the Royal Society of London is, of course, one of the premier earliest official sort of scientific societies patronized by King Charles II. And they're, they're an organization, sort of loose but very communicative organization of folks who are interested in natural philosophy, which is 
anything from, you know, natural science and natural philosophy, so chemistry, biology, you know, astronomy, and really everything that's optics, industry, everything that's out there. And they do not admit women. And in fact, they do not have formal female fellows of the society are not formally accepted until actually, I think, the 1940s or 1950s, which is quite a long time because they started in the 1600s. <laughs> wow. But Margaret Cavendish is actually the first woman to attend a lecture at the Royal Society quite early after its founding. She sort of insists on getting her way into the room. She sort of pushes her, you know, she, I don't know if she physically pushed, but she, she pushed by virtue of her personality and her actual, her social status, she was able to push her way into that room and actually become a spectator for experiments and demonstrations very early on. And she was very supportive of the work that they were doing, and she writes quite a few texts on natural philosophy herself. But she criticizes the Royal Society, and she basically is like, you're keeping us out of the room, and we have things to say. We, you know, like we have we have information to share, we have knowledge to share, and you're keeping us out of this space. She actually writes a very early science fiction, what we might call a science fiction story, called the Blazing World, which kind of imagines this sort of alternate universe <laughs> where the properties of matter are not quite the same as ours. She's a really fascinating figure, and she's a big advocate of women being engaged in chemistry and experiments, you know, hands-on experiments. She really wants to be in that room, and she makes that space for herself. Margaret Cavendish, definitely somebody for people to look up. This is the first time I've heard of her, to be very honest with you. Yeah, she's, if you study alchemy, she seems famous. <laughs> but, but to the wider world, you know, she's kind of a very cool, you know, inspirational figure for interested in sort of early women in science. And of course, she is, she's an elite, wealthy woman. She has all of these things supporting her, so she can go out and kind of boldly push at the boundaries a little bit, certainly where it wouldn't have been, you know, other women, it wouldn't have been possible for them. But she is, you know, a lot of respect for Margaret Cavendish, <laughs> sort of getting into the room, which is, you know, really difficult. Unfortunately, still today. Yeah. Fast forward to now, what are some of the STEAM resources you see that might point us towards getting more women and girls involved through art in the sciences? Well, I will say, you know, of course, there's an emphasis, you know, STEM and STEAM, especially on, you know, coding and digital things. And, of course, there's organizations like Tech Girls and Black Girls Code and Girls Develop It, Girls Who Code. I think there's a lot of, there's a recognition that, you know, excluding women from tech and especially from development of tech and, and not having women in the room when those first discussions happen and not having women of color in the room, you know, all of this is damaging to the process. It's really limiting who can become engaged with it and also who benefits from the technology. So I think those organizations are really doing important work to get women into the room, you know, in the early stages to get women building, you know, their own tools and their own software. I think those are just those are just great and they often embrace young women and, you know, girls, kids who have not, you know, hopefully they have not had as many negative experiences or sort of doors shut in their faces at that point, and you can sort of keep them engaged and keep them excited about doing it. <laughs> What's been one of your very best experiences as an educator of awakening girls to the possibilities of science through art? Mm, gosh, we did a great event. I think it was in 2017 where we, we did an event called Alchemical Storytime. And we had these three stations in the museum where at each station someone was telling you 
a really interesting tidbit from the history of alchemy. So, uh, you know, one of the wild stories, because there are some really big personalities uh, in alchemy and some wild, some wild escapes and some big boasts and competitions. And there's John Dee and Edward Kelly, who supposedly they could talk to angels and they eventually get sort of cast out as frauds and they have to escape in the middle of the night. It was really fun to do this story time. And we had a mother and daughter came together and they went to every single story station and they listened to us. And then they went back again to the story stations and listened to it again to get more out of it and ask more questions. And actually, I think her daughter was about 11 or 12 and she was taking notes. You know, this was a casual sort of like first Friday fun program meant to be, you know, sort of light entertainment, informative, but, you know, really mostly engaging and fun. And she was taking notes, and she was really feeling like she was learning. And, and her mother took us aside and was like, I can't tell you what it means that my daughter is here tonight hearing these really interesting stories from three incredible women historians. And I looked around the room and realized that my other two, every single person who was telling a story at a table, my other colleagues, we were all women. We were all, you know, it had just happened that way that we had planned the event and the three people who were most excited about telling the stories were three women historians. And we were like, oh, we should do this intentionally. (laughs) You know, like, this is great that it worked out like this, but let's do this intentionally next time too, (laughs) you know. let's If this is something that our audience really needs to see and is having a powerful effect just on this one family, like, let's continue this. Let's raise the visibility of, you know, the women, the historians, the researchers that work in this building. And I think we have done that a bit here in this institution even. And I think that's happening online too, like the the hashtag and now the the website, Women Also Know History, trying to highlight, you know, the female researchers and, and women researchers and trans women researchers and all of these folks who are, you know, experts who you know, have been often, unfortunately, pushed out a little bit of the mainstream history narrative or research narratives or, you know, even STEM researches and stuff like that. So that was a cool experience. And it really, it taught me a lesson that I was like, oh, I should, we should do this mindfully because, you know, who you put up as an expert has a huge effect on the next generation and how, you know, can they see themselves as an expert? Well, really, they can only do that if there's someone who they can picture themselves as up there. Seeing someone who looks like you really does make a difference. It really does. What was that hashtag again? Women Also Know History? Women Also Know History. I think you can follow them on Twitter, and there's also a website for that as well. That website, womenalsoknowhistory.com. Womenalsoknowhistory.com. Now's a great time to check into any of the programs that you're going to have at the Science History Institute. What do you have coming up for fall 2018 that people might like to check out if they're lucky enough to be in Philadelphia? I will say we're that visibility, that question of visibility is often in our minds. So we have, just coming up in September, we have a Saturday speaker series. I think this is September 8th, and it's about stories of disability in the laboratory. So it's part of our oral history project, Scientists with Disabilities, which is gathering sort of the first-hand experiences and first-hand statements of, you know, scientists who identify as having a disability and what their lives have been like in science and, you know, what challenges they have faced, what, how they see the future of, you know, living with a disability in the laboratory. So it should actually be, it's an intense subject, it's a necessary subject, but it will also have some creative and hands-on and sort of experiences in it as well. 
and our, our wiki salons are always a regular thing. We have this wonderful Wikipedian in residence here. One of her focuses is really focusing on building up the profiles of women scientists, scientists of color on Wikipedia, making a contribution to those those pages in Wikipedia, which are often like sort of stub pages, they don't have a lot of detail. You know, if you're not if you're not Isaac Newton, you don't have necessarily a full biography on Wikipedia. So we have some folks internally who are working on correcting that stuff. So yeah, there's always we have a start talking science at the end of September where you can actually come and talk to scientists who have presentations about their work, and you can just come and ask your questions. Like, how does this work? (laughs) You know, how do we sleep? How do we wake? You know, how does this drug interact within my body? How does this, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's really cool. And there's no such thing as a silly question is what I've just heard you say. No, there is no such thing as a silly question when you are willing to go and talk science and put yourself out there. So yeah, on sciencehistory.org, our event calendar has all the stuff happening, you know, throughout the fall. We have events year-round, weekends, drop-in hours on weekdays, et cetera, et cetera. Sciencehistory.org. Please tell me a little bit about the Goldsmith's Daughter. Ooh, we're so excited. So Age of Alchemy, the Goldsmith's Daughter, is we are in our prototype year. We received a grant from the NEH to do a prototyping round for this game from in 2018, which we are very grateful for and excited about. So the idea of the game comes out of our fine art collections, which not a lot of people know that we have. We have a quite beautiful collection of, you know, paintings, prints, other kinds of works on paper, even a few sculptures. But the bulk of our collection is images of alchemy and alchemists in their workspaces. And so Age of Alchemy, the exhibit, came out of this. And also, at the same time, we've been developing this game project because there's a few... These images are very cool. They're very evocative. They're sort of these dark, cluttered, amazing laboratories with all this stuff piled everywhere and these experiments that are so intriguing. But they're not always straightforward. It's not easy to see... It's not easy to understand maybe what processes they're doing or, you know, are these... Is this sort of an arcane wizard thing, or is it, you know, should I see them as a chemist? Should I see them as a, a quack or a fraud? You know, how, how when I come to the paintings as a non-expert, do I experience them? How do I understand, and how do I understand their place in the world? You know, did people view, how did people view alchemy? Did early modern people, did people in the time when these paintings were created, did they see alchemy as fraudulent? Did they see it as fake? Did they see it as real and useful, etc.? So we thought... How can we let people step into the paintings and touch stuff, basically, you know, because that's what you're sort of compelled to do. You see, like, this cool pile of glassware and ceramic vessels and heating basins and, you know, powders and bones and coal and all this cool stuff. You're like, how do I touch it? How do I understand what it is? So we thought if people could step into the paintings and manipulate the objects, if they could, you know, hold the if they could put a glass vessel over the fire and watch it bubble and they could think about, you know, what does it take to really stand in front of the furnace and monitor an experiment for hours or even days because some of these experiments lasted that long. You know, what does it take to be an alchemist? We thought that was the first phase and we thought, okay, well, we'll let people step into the paintings. And then we thought, why don't we give them a story so that they can understand that alchemy is a problem-solving tool you know, and we eventually developed the story of a young woman who's living in 17th century London and who has this knowledge. So she's a goldsmith's daughter. And of course, goldsmiths work with metals. 
They understand the properties of metals. They test the properties of metals. They color metals. They manipulate metals. And she, as a young woman who's part of this family working in this trade, she would have had a lot of knowledge. She would have been, you know, like I said about them, sort of members of the alchemical household. You know, you pick up those things when it's part of the family business. But she would not really have been able to practice openly as an alchemist or set up her own shop or her own business. So we thought that kind of story would help people empathize and help people understand, you know, they'd want this character to succeed and to push against the sort of boundaries that were holding her back. So we built this around this character and sort of went from there. Sort of. So it's taken us in a lot of different directions. And we want to show the range of, you know, alchemical practices that you can get into and, you know, really take people into the paintings but also into the world. So we're hoping, we're hoping to have a prototype by the end of this year that will be sort of playable and testable, and we're hoping that next year we will go into a production phase. So fingers crossed that we will just, you know, keep this momentum. How exciting. And it sounds like this is VR. You say manipulating. It sounds like you strap on the headset and you're there. Yeah, the idea of the game is that it will be, I think, an iPad or mobile game format, and there will be some actual... You know, you're reading texts, you're interpreting recipes, you're, you're manipulating and holding, you know, you're picking up objects and testing their qualities. And you also have a chance to really make, follow recipes and create things. So you get to shake the, you know, you get to shake the mixture and you get to blow on the fire to stoke it a little bit and you get to do all these things. And the team that we're working with is through the Drexel University's Entrepreneurial Game Studio. They're a recent game firm called Gossamer Games, and they are a very storytelling-driven team. And they're creating this amazing, very immersive environment, but they're also thinking about how the sort of phone physics, um, you know, tilting your phone, blowing across your microphone, all these kinds of things. How can you actually affect things and get get a sort of tactile sense of, you know, you can't replicate exactly lighting a fire and stirring things into a beaker, but you can give people a little bit of a, you know, a physical interaction with the environment in a different way. So they're, they're very cleverly using that sort of phone physics engine to develop the game. This is going to be incredible. I really wish you'd give me an update when this is ready, when the prototype's out, and also when the game's out for our listeners. I will. Oh, we're going to... When we are ready to play test, we're going to tell the whole world. <laughs> we're, we're so excited about this game. Please. <laughs> Lisa, as we wrap up today, and thank you for your time, if people could get only one thing from you, as an artist and a scientist, about innovation, creativity, and making a difference, what would you want them to take away? Ooh. I guess, you know, a lot of this is like, don't, don't be, af- I mean, I can't say don't be afraid to break a boundary, because of course, you know, for some people there end up being consequences and things, but, you know, art and science were not separate developments. They were totally tied together. They were part of a whole way of seeing the world. And if we could accept that, I think we could accept a lot of things that are important to accept. You know, we could have a more humanistic view of science and maybe science could come back and, you know, have a deeper respect for the humanities as well. We could, you know, like if we could learn from each other, I think we could accomplish a lot more. Lisa, thank you for your time today. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. You and I have been listening to Dr. Lisa Barry Drago, Public History Fellow at Philadelphia's Science History Institute. You'll find more information on the Science History Institute's projects, including their September Saturday Speaker Series on Stories of Disability in the Laboratory at their website sciencehistory.org. That's sciencehistory.org. 
Be sure and check as well for the updates on how and where you can play their new forthcoming game, Age of Alchemy, The Goldsmith's Daughter. Once again, that's sciencehistory.org. And that concludes this edition of Over Coffee. Thank you for listening. Listen to additional episodes of Over Coffee on our website, twomavericks.com. That's 2-T-W-O Mavericks, M-A-V-E-R-I-X, twomavericks.com. And you can contact us at twomavericks at gmail.com. The music you're hearing is royalty-free production music provided by Pond5 at pond5.com. I'm Dot Cannon. Here's wishing you a cappuccino day.